What do you think some of the major problems are the one of the biggest problems associated with face and neck injuries might be? Airway. That's right. Always airway, right? The face, the scalp, very vascular in nature. Um, and the neck. Do you think you got some big vessels in your neck? Yeah. All right. So in this chapter, we're going to talk about all that. It says that the face and neck are vulnerable to injury. That's kind of out there, right? That's what people see. Um, you're typically facing that way, I guess, so to speak. Relatively unprotected. Um, and again, a lot of the injuries tend to go back toward Difficulty in managing airway and, and obviously breathing and circulation. Penetrating trauma to the neck may cause severe bleeding. What arteries are in your neck do you think that might bleed pretty severely? Carotid arteries. Turns out you got two of them, right? What else? Now you're sneezing. I know. Coughing, sneezing. You know, hiccups are next. All right. Carotid arteries. What else? Your external jugular veins. Those are veins, not arteries, but they're pretty significant, right? Returning blood. Um, and tell me why do you think this is? An open injury may result in an air embolism. We're talking about injuries to the neck. How could that create an air embolism? Into your veins? Carotid artery. Okay. Just a mental note, and it never hurts to be safe, right? But really, any open wound from the neck to the bottom or to your diaphragm, anything between here and here could always benefit from using an occlusive dressing, right? You might use regular dressing to stop the bleeding, but you need to put that non-porous material on there too that's going to prevent air from getting sucked into the body. Because an air embolism... Y'all remember when you was in high school and you took those little, like, ASVAB tests or those other tests or whatever that would give you those analogies like, uh, you know, uh, I guess a tremor is to an earthquake like something else is to something. You had to figure out what that other something was. Well, uh, air embolism to the heart is like what to a pump? Well, it's cavitation, yeah, same thing. All right, so completely messed up example, but you, you get the point. Several hundred dollars, right? Oh, and I had a previous student tell me yesterday something, two things that I found real interesting. One, he told me that I told him I didn't think he was ever going to pass the class, and he did. I can't believe I told somebody that, but apparently I did because he seemed pretty serious. Another thing he told me was, that the reason he got through EMT is he always thought about hydraulics and pumps because and that he applied that to the body. How many times have I told y'all that already? So maybe I told him that too, but I also told him he was going to fail and he didn't, so I don't know. All right. With appropriate pre-hospital and hospital care, a patient with seemingly 
Devastating injuries can have surprisingly good outcomes. That's if they get definitive care. How soon? Within that first hour, that golden period. And I'm telling you, I mean, I've, I mean that's a very true statement, and there's no, no sense in going on about it a whole lot. But anytime you have effective teamwork, no matter what scenario you're talking about, outcomes are going to be better, right? Things you want to keep in mind, things that are going to drive your treatment plan when you're talking about injuries to the face and neck. Always prevention of further injury, right? Do, do no harm, right? That's what even the doctors take an oath to that, right? Uh, prevention of further injury, managing any acute airway problems and controlling the, the bleeding. The, the ABCs, and you, you can't say it enough, it definitely gets back to the ABCs, talking about the face and the neck. The cranium is also referred to as the skull. It contains the brain. How many bones make up your cranium? Don't everybody talk at once. How many bones make up your cranial vault? Huh? Six. Then if you look at the other one I told you about, really seven, but six is what the book will tell you, right? What are they? What bones make up the cranium? What? Do what, Cameron? Frontal bone? Occipital bone? Well, there's two parietals, actually. Two parietals, two temporals. Those are the six. But then that seventh one, that's the floor of the cranial vault, is the what? Cribiform plate. Okay. Those are the seven bones of the cranium, not the face, obviously. Those are a different set of bones. Between the temporal regions and the occiput lie the parietals. Forehead is the frontal region. Some folks got a big old frontal region, don't they? You know. Anterior to the ear or in front of the ear is the temporal region and you can feel the pulse of the superficial temporal artery right there in your temple and I know these are some highly technical terms here but the face is comprised of the forehead or the frontal bone right the eyes what are the eye sockets medically known as Huh? Orbits, yes. And the orbits are made up of part of the frontal bone, right? Part of the zygomas. Part of the uh, nasal bones, lacrimal bones, things of that nature. And then part of the temporal, right? Forehead, eyes, ears, nose, mouth, cheeks, and the jaw. Lower jaw is the mandible. Upper jaw is the maxilla. What are the cheekbones? Zygomas. And what's that joint right there where the temporal bones and the, and the temporal bone and the mandible come together? 
temporomandibular joint, TMJ, right? How many cervical vertebrae do you have? How can you find the seventh cervical vertebrae? It's the one that's the most prominent, right? In the back of the neck, that's the seventh. Okay. Uh, And again, all of this is straight out of chapter 5. I says the neck contains important structures and is supported by the cervical spine. The upper part of the esophagus and the trachea lie in the midline of the neck. Which one's anterior? Trachea, right? And if you ever forget that, just poke your finger on your throat when you're talking, right? It sounds funny. That's the trachea. And the carotid arteries are found on either side of the trachea along with the jugular veins. These muscles right here, the sternocleidomastoid muscles, they connect back here, at, obviously, at the mastoid process behind the ear. comes down to the sternum, right, or the sternal area. Therefore, sternocleidomastoid muscles they help you turn your head back and forth. But what else? What other role do the, do the sternocleidomastoids play that we've talked about? Uh, extra breathing muscle. Accessory muscle breathing. That's correct. Okay. You've got your thyroid cartilage, your trachea right there. And what is that bone right there called? And what's unique or special about the hyoid bone? It's the only bone that's not in, that doesn't contact another bone. It's kind of a floating bone, if you will. And the hyoid bone, along with the ninth pair of cranial nerves, allows you to do what? Swallow. Swallow. There you go. I'm glad y'all remember all this from chapter 5. Uh, obviously, the Adam's apple, thyroid cartilage. Cartilage just inferior to the thyroid cartilage is the cricoid cartilage. I don't know nobody from San Jose, California, y'all. So that means I don't need to answer it. And I'm scanning through some of the stuff that I've already talked about, but if I need to slow down, y'all please let me know. All right, the eyeball, the eye, the globe of the eye or the body of the eye is about one inch in diameter. It's located within a bony socket in the skull called the orbit. So if you have bruising around the orbit, what's the medical term for that? What's the, it's a black eye, yeah, but what's the eye? No. I couldn't hear you. No, raccoon eyes, but that's just... That is raccoon eyes, but what's the medical term for raccoon's eyes? What's the medical prefix for a round? Uh, Y'all killing me. Perry. Perry <laughs> means a round. Perry orbital. Echomosis. Periorbital echomosis, a raccoon's eyes, a black eye. 
Um, and why you would need to know this, I'm not sure, but more than 80% of the eyeball is protected within the bony orbit. Well, there you go. Two main chambers. You need to know two main fluid-filled chambers in the eyeball. You've got an anterior chamber and a posterior chamber, okay? Uh, and this fluid helps the eyeball keep its, its, I guess, shape, if you will. Anterior chamber is filled with aqueous humor. Aqueous humor. The posterior chamber is filled with vitreous humor. That's going to be a little more viscous, if you will. You can lose a little bit of the aqueous humor. It can le- a little bit can leak out of the eye, and the eye can, I guess, survive for lack of a better word. And that little bit of that fluid might even replace itself. But if you lose the vitreous humor from the posterior chamber, it's just gone. It ain't coming back, and that's when you lose eyes a lot of time. All right, you got the pupil. The lens, the cornea, the iris. What part of the eye has its color? What does the pupil do? Contracts and dilates based on the amount of light coming in, right? Shines the image back here by the uh, optic nerve on the back of the eye. And really, I guess... I say it's a strange thing because it would probably freak me out, but I'm sure most of y'all have already heard. All y'all have heard if you were in here when we was talking about it, but one of our, one of our firefighters had a, a stroke earlier this year. And when he was in the hospital, there was a period of time where he would only look through one eye and he kept alternating eyes. And I asked him when he got back to work not too long ago, uh, why were you doing that? And he never said this in the hospital because he said it freaked him out and he just didn't want to tell nobody. But everything he was seeing was upside down. So that optic nerve strokes effect, and he had a basilar stroke. The stroke was at the base of his brain. So it really was freaking him out. But he didn't even tell the doctors or anybody that. But I told him, I said, yeah, I would have closed both of my eyes probably. Oh, and he also had a disconjugate gaze. What does that mean? He's like a lizard, right? One eye going that way, one eye going that way. He don't have that anymore, by the way. So, good deal. All right. Clear jelly-like fluid near the back of the eye is the vitreous humor. Uh, In front of the lens is a fluid called aqueous humor. Um, Again... Some of the aqueous can, can leak out from a penetrating type injury, um, but that, that other is just not going to come back. The conjunctiva is a membrane that covers the eyes. If you pick your eyelid up and you look inside your eyelid, that pink part, that's the conjunctiva. And you, you also consider sometimes the gums um, and the, the eyelids and everything is what they, what they consider the conjunctiva. Is, does that play a role if you're assessing a patient too, you think? If you look underneath their eyelids and it's white on the inside, not pink, or their gums have lost color, what do you know? 
definitely could be shocky. They're definitely hypovolemic or something, okay? Um, because they're they're not doing well. Lacrimal glands produce tears and keep the eyes moist. The sclera, S-C-L-E-R-A, is the white of the eye. Tough, fibrous type tissue, necessarily so, because you don't want just anything poking the eye out, right? The cornea replaces the sclera on front of the eye. That's that clear section that covers your pupil. Allows light to enter. And the iris is a circular muscle behind the cornea where the color of the eye is located. The pupil is the opening and center of the iris. It's also the center of the roof of the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, right? That's like a pupil. Gets larger, let more light in. Gets smaller, right? Same concept. And if you was going to remember anything off of this slide, I would remember Anisocoria. A-N-I-S-O-C-O-R-I-A. And that's when someone has different sized pupils naturally. Now, if we run a call, especially a trauma call, maybe involved a blow to the head, maybe that was the mechanism, and you see two different sized pupils, what does that tell you as a clinician? Building up pressure in the cranial vault, right? Increased ICP. Some people are born that way with different sized pupils, so... You know, if you ask them, hey, do you have anisocoria? They probably not a clue what you're talking about. But you have to treat the patient not, I guess, this doesn't really apply, but there's a, a saying, treat the patient not the machine. I guess you have to look at all the pieces of the puzzle and put it together. If they've got a different size pupil but no history of a trauma to the head or nothing else that might indicate a bleed in the brain, then you might want to ask, hey, are your pupils normally different sizes? Now, if they've had a blow to the head or there's something that's indicating ICP to you in some fashion, if they're conscious or not, probably really no need to really ask that question at that point because you probably understand why the pupils are, are different sizes there. The retina contains nerve endings and they respond to the light by transmitting nerve impulses through the nerve optic nerve to the brain it's trying to decipher or interpret those light images that are shining on the back of the eye how many bones how many ears do you have or parts of the ears Okay, what are they? External, middle, and inner. Okay. Let's just look at or talk about the external ear. What are the parts of the external ear? What is the tragus? T-R-A-G-U-S. So it's that piece right there, right? That's your tragus. That little piece right here. What's the 
Auricle, A-U-R-I-C-L-E. It has another name too. No, it's not the lobe, it's, but it's the, the, the pina. There you go, auricle or pina. And then, of course, the earlobe. Now, what is your inner ear? Well, that's a silly question or a phrase, silly. There's three bones in that in, inner ear, right? What are they called? Okay. Now the cochlea is that circular type thing that has the fluid in it that helps us maintain balance, right? Here's a useless little fact. We have an oracle or the ossicles, I should say, that help us maintain our balance because of fluid in those chambers, right? And if you spin around, that fluid gets displaced because of centrifugal force, right? And that's why you get a little dizzy. Do you know how a lobster maintains his balance or her balance? There's a little, I ain't making this up. There's a little indented spot on their forehead, and they'll get a little grain of sand up in that little indented spot on their forehead. And then as that little grain of sand moves back and forth or forward or back, that's how the lobster maintains his balance in the water. <laughs> So if you catch a, li- a live lobster, take a rag and wipe his forehead off and put him back in the water and see what happens. See, Brad's going to go try that somewhere. Listen, don't go to Red Lobster. I read it somewhere. But do not go to Red Lobster and try to get off in that tank. You get in trouble. So you have the, the cochlea with the fluid. What are those three bones, though? Stapes is one of them. Malleus and the Incus. What do we call that on the street, though? Hammer, anvil, anvil, and the stirrup. Right. Those are the three. Those are your what are called auditory, auditory ossicles. You have six total, right? Three in each ear. Now, what is the middle ear? What type of trauma is the middle ear really susceptible to? Huh? Okay. Pressure injuries, right? Or barotrauma. Because it's inside. What allows the middle ear to equalize its pressure a lot of times? There's a tube that runs from the middle ear down to the throat. You station tube. That's why if you're on an airplane, you're taking off and your ears kind of clog up. You can yawn or chew gum or something. It allows those pressures to equalize and that, that, that feeling goes away. That's all the outer ear that we've already talked about. Mastoid process is a prominent bony mass at the base of the skull. It is where, though? I told you a minute ago. The mastoid process, that's the sternocleidomastoid muscle attaches to the mastoid process behind the ears, posterior to the ear. That's right. And when we talk about the basal or skull fractures, you know, talk about the periorbital ecchymosis or raccoon's eyes, but, but if you have bruising 
on the mastoid processes, what is that called? It's called battle sign. So, raccoon's eyes are periorbital ecchymosis, bruising at the mastoid processes or battle signs, especially if you see those and you have clear fluid coming from the nose or ears, basilar skull fracture. Talked about all that already. There's a picture. Again, if you're looking at injuries to the face, to the neck, the airway obstruction is, is, is a huge concern. Um, Dislodgement of teeth or dentures can be in the throat. Doesn't matter what's in the airway. When you get there, you need to make sure the airway is good and clear. Soft tissue injuries are very common. Again, the face, the scalp, very vascular in nature. And looking at this picture, I think it's probably a little more clear in your book, but is this is this poor lady bleeding outside her skin or inside her skin? Inside. Yeah, it kind of at first glance it just looks like it's kind of rolling down the outside of her face, right? But that's not the case. All right. Facial fractures. How do we classify facial fractures? There's a specific name for them. The forts fracture. And they come in different severities, right? The forts one, the forts two, and the forts three. And each classification speaks to where the face is broken, okay? Y'all bear with me for a second. There you go. Since I kind of got ahead, we'll go ahead and look at them. That's Lafort's one, where the um, maxilla is kind of... And if they have a Lafort's one, as they're talking, you can literally see their teeth kind of not moving with the rest of their... They get to talking or whatever. They open their uh, mouth, the mandible, and the top section will kind of drop down a little bit. It's a weird thing to see. The forts two fracture goes up and over the um, the nasal cavity there between the orbits. The forts three goes across the top of the orbits. Which one do you want to have? No. Neither one of them. That's right. All right. Let me see. Signs and symptoms of facial fractures, deep facial lacerations. If there's really significant cuts to the soft tissue, you can assume that there's a facial laceration, uh, a facial fracture. Even if it's not true, you can go ahead and assume it. If there's pain associated with palpating a particular bone, ecchymosis, swelling, 
crepitus. What do we say crepitus was? It's when you palpate and you hear or feel bone ends rubbing together. Didn't come from the factory like that, right? So there's a problem. Misalignment of teeth, facial deformities, or asymmetry. Instability of facial bones, impaired ocular movement, especially with the blowout fractures, right? The bone, even though the eye is not completely out of the orbit, there's a fracture because it's partially out and the bone's broken and they can't move their eye as well. And visual disturbances like diplopia and things of that nature. What is that? Huh? I can't hear you, brother. Double. Double vision. Yep. Nasal fractures is the most common facial fracture. Swelling, tenderness, crepitus, usually associated with epistaxis, right? The nose will be bleeding, which again leads back to the airway compromise problem. Mandibular fractures. Uh, massive blunt force trauma to the lower third of the face. Maybe fractured in more than one place. Again, misalignment of the teeth, numbness, inability to open their mouth, or inability to close their mouth, one of the two. Maxillary fractures. It's kind of when you start getting into the little forts here that they're about to show us the picture. Massive facial swelling, instability of the mid-facial bones. These bones are not supposed to move around, right? It's kind of stationary. And there they are again, the Laforts. Are there any questions about the Lafort fractures? Pretty straightforward, right? Zygomatic fractures or cheekbone fractures, again, blunt force trauma typically. One side of the face will appear flat because that bone's broken. It's not normally flat, but if you break it and it's kind of receded back into the face, so to speak, it's going to look flat because it is flat. Loss of sensation. Paralysis of upward gaze. If you, if you see somebody, especially if they have like a flattened one side and it's obvious that maybe a zygoma is fractured, ask them to look up. And if they can't, there you go. That seals the deal. Any questions about that? All right, let's get started back. When dealing with Facial and neck injuries, how will your scene size up differ? It won't, will it? Why do you think you need several pairs of gloves when dealing with these injuries, though? Very vascular, right? It's going to bleed a lot. Okay. Look for your mechanism of injury, nature of illness. Treat the ABCs, of course. Form your general impression. Palpate not just the chest wall, but you can palpate most parts of the body. 
looking for that decap BTLS. Once you uh, finish your primary assessment, you make your transport decision, right? If they're priority patients, they have to be all seen how fast? There you go. Signs and symptoms of shock. Tachycardia, which is pulse rate above what? Pulse rate above 100, tachycardia. Tachypnea is what? Yeah, fast breathing over 20 a minute. Is that an early sign or late sign? The low blood pressure is definitely a late sign of shock. They've actually gone into decompensated, right? Which will bring about a weak pulse. And the skin will be cool, moist, and pale. Why? 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 That's what you talk. There you go. At this point, y'all all know if I ask why three or more times in a row, I'm looking for you to say epinephrine. All right. Get your history. Always get your history. Do your physical exam. If they're a priority patient, you do a rapid full body scan, right? If they're stable... You focus your physical exam on chief complaint. Y'all ought to know this in your sleep by now. It's vital signs. Reassess either 5 or 15 after any, any interventions that you provide. Communicate, document. All right. says that you should treat soft tissue injuries to the head. Excuse me, head's not up there anywhere. To the face and neck, the same as soft tissue injuries elsewhere on the body. But what are some of the obvious exceptions, though? Or, or when would it be different? Airway. Airway's always going to take precedent, right? And can you put direct pressure in certain places on the neck like you would other places of the body? You don't want to do anything to occlude that blood flow to the brain, right? So you have to keep that in mind as well. Control bleeding by applying direct manual pressure. You're going to use your roller gauze. But do not apply excessive pressure if it's possible that they have a skull fracture. It's just good old common sense. And I'm going to read this, and I'm going to change that statement just a little bit. It says, if brain, eye, or other structures are exposed, in other words, they're normally under the skin, but now they're outside of the skin, cover with a moist, sterile dressing. That's true for anything. A bone end, a loop of intestine, brain, whatever. If it's normally inside the body... And you get there now, it's outside the body. You cover it with a moist, sterile dressing. You should apply ice locally to injuries that do not break the skin. 
Again, it causes that vasoconstriction and limits the amount of bleeding. Broken teeth and tongue lacerations may cause extensive bleeding and obstruction to the upper airway. If you show up on the scene and somebody's got teeth that's been knocked out, laying on the ground, floor, whatever, how should you pick those teeth up? Okay, of course. Because if it's wet and belongs to anybody else, you don't want it on you. But what part of the tooth should you pick it up by, I guess? Not the root. The, I guess the crown or the, the, yeah, the eating part. There you go. Not the whole known part, the eating part. Huh? Now, and this may sound silly, but you're going to bring that tooth to the hospital with you, right? What might you put that tooth in, which you will not have on an ambulance, but the book says you can put that tooth in something to transport it? Milk. Milk. It says milk. Sure does. Can't you put it in their saliva, too? Like they spit in the cup and you stick it in there? That would be... Because it has the same bacteria or whatever. Yeah. I'm sure you could. I can see where that would be a good thing. Right, if you find portions of a bull's skin, this is a section of skin that's basically removed from the body, you can wrap it in sterile dressing, place it in a plastic bag, uh, keep it cool, but do not put it directly on ice. Direct ice application will damage it. And you should label it and deliver it to the emergency department with the patient. If it's still attached... What are you going to do? If it's a big flap of skin, just like the picture shows, what should you do with that flap of skin? The skin, what does the skin do for us to begin with? Covers, protects, helps. It's, yeah, that's right. Moisture content helps regulate that. It helps protect you from uh, pathogens from the outside world. Helps conserve body temperature or regulate body temperature. It can't do any of those things if it's missing, right? So you're absolutely going to flap it back to where it's supposed to go and wrap it uh, in place. Scalpel lacerations can be minor or very serious, but they absolutely can bleed through enough through their scalp to go into shock. They absolutely can. Highly vascular. But now let me ask you, blood in the hair, does it automatically look worse than what it is? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Eye injuries uh, can produce lifelong complications. Um, obviously, you get to messing with somebody's vision, ability to see or see properly. That That's going to affect them for the rest of their life. Um Certain concepts or things to keep in mind when you're talking about an injured eye uh, as far as the things that you do uh, to make sure nothing further happens primarily is what I'm, what I'm stumbling on here. But if they have something in their eye, 
irrigate the eye. And the big concept or something you'll keep in mind here is if they've got something in the right eye, I'm just picking an eye at random, and you flush the right eye to where it goes into the left eye, now you have two contaminated eyes, right? So you don't want to do that. Obviously flush it to where it flushes or washes away from the, the unaffected eye. What? Nasal cannula? To flush both eyes? Well, go ahead. You want to do Not all this 50-year-old donated stuff I have in here, no. Again, it says general irrigation... Um, if it's stuck to the cornea, it's not going to remove, but you may be able to remove it with a moist, sterile, cotton-tipped applicator. What do we call those cotton-tipped applicators? But never attempt to remove a foreign body that is stuck to the cornea. Anything that's impaled whether it's in the eye or whether it's in any part of the body, you don't remove it, right? Unless it's creating an airway concern or preventing you from doing what? There you go. Other than that, you bandage it in place, transport, support it. Now, I will point this out to you. If there's a pencil or something stuck in the right eye, now you can take roller gauze and make that donut and put it over there and you can cover that with a cup, right? And if the pencil's too long, you just take the bottom of the cup out. Again, you're not going to have a cup on an ambulance. But if you were to have one, you take the bottom out. But not a styrofoam cup, a paper cup. Why would they distinguish between the two? All them little styrofoam guts that float around, right? So paper cup, take the bottom out. But if something is seriously impaled into one eye, now, of course, you're going to bandage that and stabilize that object. You're not going to pull it out. But would you cover the other eye? Think about it. If I've got something stuck in this eye and then something enters the room over here, you might be focusing on it. That's true. But if this left eye turns... To see something over here, what's that right eye going to do? So, cover both eyes. That is, unless you've got a disconjugate gaze, the eyes should move in the same direction. Some people call that being tangle-eyed. All right. Objects impaled in the eye. Cover the eye with a moist, sterile dressing. Surround the object with a donut-shaped collar. And that's as simple as you take roller gauze. If you make a C out of your, your hand into a C, and you take roller gauze and you just go around your thumb and your fingers, and when you finish, it'll look like a donut. And you can roll that right over the, the eye. Burns to the eye. Stop the burn. Again, you're going to flush it with copious amounts of water.
it's going to be thermal burns or chemical burns. Let me ask you a question. I want you to look it up in your book. If someone has a chemical burn to the eye, well, I just kind of gave it away, I think. But all right. Well, here's the question: If they have a chemical burn to the eye and they're wearing contacts, do you leave the contact in place or do you take it out? How about a, under any other circumstance? Do you leave it in or take it out? Look it up in your book. It's there somewhere. And I'm gonna hit. All right. So that's almost guaranteed to be on your test. Ways to irrigate, to effectively irrigate the eye. We've talked about that. If it's both eyes, you can take like a nasal cannula and spread it across the bridge of the nose. Take saline flush. Gently push the saline through there. I mean, don't don't juice them up, but. But whatever you do, just make sure that you're not washing the irritant, whatever it is, into the unaffected eye. That's the thing you have to keep in mind. All right. Chemical burns. Again, we're removing the contact lens, right? If, but if it's caused by an alkali or a strong acid, irritate for at least 20 minutes. Irrigate for at least 20 minutes. Excuse me. It's probably irritating for quite a while, but... Irrigate for at least 20 minutes with copious amounts of water. Chemical burns and also chemical burns, uh, like flash burns, something that's exposed to like real intense bright light and it causes damage. When you bandage those eyes and you want to bandage both of them, you want to put some of those reflective type iPads on top too, things that are going to prevent additional light from getting in, okay? And uh, with maybe something moist and sterile underneath it. Thermal burns, what's he missing now? Eyelid. Can't close his eyes because his lid's not there. Transport promptly. Cover both eyes with a sterile dressing, moistened, and then apply those eye shields that we were talking about. That can't get any more light because he has no way of protecting his eye from the light. Um, Again, infrared rays, eclipse light, laser beams, retinal injuries um, can produce permanent damage. Generally not painful. Cover each eye again. The sterile sterile moist pad and that eye shield to keep additional light from getting in. Lacerations to the eyes. Why is it important and why do you really not want to apply pressure to the eye if there's any type of laceration? That's it. That aqueous humor, that vitreous humor, you, you don't want it to, to leave the eye if it's still there. And that's what it boils down to. Cover it with moist sterile dressing. And, and it doesn't matter really. Uh, I'd go ahead and get both eyes, but now, let, let me just ask you this. If you've got a patient that's got one eye that's damaged to the point where they're in fear of losing that eye, or maybe they can't see through it when you get there for whatever reason. 
Now you're going to try to cover the, the, the one good eye they got left. Is that going to make them apprehensive, you think? It, it's all mental at that point, but absolutely, that's something you got to talk them through, you know? It's important, though, because of that sympathetic eye movement a lot of times. Yeah. Don't exert pressure and manipulate the injured globe. If the eyeball is exposed, you're going to do you one of those roller donuts we talked about and kind of cover it and then put the moist, sterile dressing on top of it. Maybe even a cup if you have it. Is that a styrofoam cup? That's kind of what we just talked about. What is that? Hyphema. And if this person were to move their head side to side, it's a liquid. It's going to do like liquids do. It's blood inside, well, between the cornea and the iris and, and the pupil. It's weird. I had a, uh, I was teaching a class. And when we got to this chapter, I actually had a student that had hyphema. You could sit there and look at it, and that's why when he'd move his head, you could see the blood sloshing around in his eye. So, yeah. What's that? Huh? He has a blowout fracture, but that's that disconjugate gaze. And what do you call that? Well, that's what other folks call it. Perioverlecomosis. There you go. Raccoon's eyes. And this lady has what? If that occurs naturally. Blast injuries, what do we said? There's different stages of blast injuries that we've already talked about in previous chapters, right? That initial blast or the pressure wave from the blast usually affects what type of organs? The hollow ones from that pressure. Okay. Um, what do you think, what phase of the blast do you think would, would get the eye a lot of times? That's where all that flying debris, right? Probably going to hit you. If there's a foreign body in the eye, don't remove it. If only one eye is injured, follow local protocols, but it probably wants you to bandage the other one too, just to prevent further damage from that sympathetic eye movement. All right. Do not attempt to remove contact lenses unless there is a chemical burn. We've already figured that one out, right? Um it says use a small suction cup moistened with saline to remove hard contact lenses. Um, if it's soft contact lenses, you just kind of pinch the lens between your fingers. Just drag it down off of the cornea and kind of pinch it and it'll come off. And, and I'm asking this out of ignorance. Are there, are there many people wearing hard contact lenses anymore? Yeah. All right, now, 
If somebody's got an artificial eye and you roll up into the emergency room talking about how the pupils are of unequal size, <laughs> it's probably going to be a nurse laugh at you. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that. But if the pupil does not respond to light or if it does not move in concert with the opposite eye, again, because of sympathetic eye movement, they should move together. If this one's moving and that one's staying straight, you might want to ask them. And maybe it don't look quite the same as the other eye. Yeah. Tink, 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 tink. <laughs> don't do that. All right, what is epistaxis? How do we treat a nosebleed? Pinch it, have lean back. All right. What are some things that could cause a nosebleed? High blood pressure, trauma, digital trauma, right? If you did not know it, your nose is divided into two chambers. All right. Now, we talked about the basilar skull fracture, and this is something that I'm not sure I've talked to y'all about. Uh, what what did we say the signs and symptoms of a basilar skull fracture were? Uh, Cerebral spinal fluid coming from the nose or ears. What if you just see the periorbital ecchymosis, you see battle signs, right? And then you've got the, the mechanism of injury. Something's happened to them. This kind of, they've sustained a blow to the head. Then you see, what if you just see blood coming out of the nose? Is that safe then? You know, how can you tell if cerebrospinal fluid is mixed into that blood? You get like a napkin or something and touch it and it'll have like a halo effect. It's called a halo test. You take a non-sterile 4x4 and kind of fold it in half catty-cornered where it kind of looks like that. Y'all with me? Then you take one of the tips and it doesn't matter which one it is but just dip it into the blood and let the blood absorb up to a certain spot, wherever you decide. Okay, so now that tip is saturated with blood. And Mike, you'll figure this out like everybody else already has. I'm a wonderful artist. I draw really good. So then you watch it, right? And as you're watching it, if cerebrospinal fluid is in that blood, it will separate itself in that 4 by 4 So you'll have a little area... It looks like a halo around the perimeter or the edges of the blood where the 4 by 4 just becomes wet. And there'll be a halo. It's called a halo test because CSF will separate itself from the blood once it's on that 4 by 4 Then you'll know. Okay? Injuries to the ear. Do not typically bleed a lot, but then direct pressure, if it's been evolved or partially evolved, obviously you need to get it and take, take it with you. Again, nothing's any form, no foreign bodies are removed. 
That should be done with a with a uh, by a physician. Again, the facial fractures. If someone has a facial fracture, regardless, especially as you get up in Laforts two, Laforts three, or maybe even much worse than that, uh, the face will just not look natural. It's not going to be symmetrical. The right side of the face should kind of be symmetrical to the left side normally, but if if it's not, if the face is elongated or maybe. I mean, if the face is broken, you're going to know. There's just no better way to put it. Is that face broken? Well, I think she had her last day. Because that looks like an endotracheal tube still in her mouth. Facial fractures are not acute emergencies unless it's my face. If my face is broke, y'all come on quick. It's acute. <laughs> Unless there's something serious bleeding again, it goes back to the airway. That is your that is your major problem. So plastic surgeons can repair damage if treated within seven days to ten days. Dental injuries can be traumatic to the patient. Uh, again, you got to watch the bleeding. You got to watch the teeth. It gets back to the airway again, um, but they can be surgically implanted back in there. Handle it by its crown and not the root. I guess that has a direct effect on that tooth's ability to, I guess, re-implant itself. Re-implant re-implantation is recommended within 20 minutes to one hour after the trauma. They kind of got to get in there. Injuries of the cheek. If you have an impaled object stuck in the cheek, do you pull it out? Unless. All right. Now, if it's, a, if it's an airway concern, if something's stuck in their cheek, do you pull it? out from where it came or do you pull it on through the, the direction of travel whatever works best does your book say one way or the other if it's an arrow stuck in their cheek it probably don't matter how because they're a lucky person and you ain't gonna hurt them do I it doesn't say well it may be something that they're not teaching anymore, but I know in previous texts I have read that you pull it out the direction in which it came in. Why? I'm not going to be able to tell you. If you happen to see that on the test, I'm still convinced that's right. But unless it's creating a legitimate airway concern, you're not going to pull it either direction. Injuries to the neck. Again, we've got pretty important structures in the neck, carotid arteries, jugular veins. You've got your cricoid cartilage, thyroid cartilage, the back of the neck. You have the cervical spine. All those things, um, obviously, you don't want injured to begin with. Obviously, blunt force trauma to the anterior neck, loss of voice, difficulty swallowing, 
If it crushes the trachea, it could lead to a life-threatening airway occlusion. You may not be able to do nothing about it. Subcutaneous emphysema. What is that? It's air leaking out under the skin, right? If that trachea is fractured, or if there's an injury to the lung sometimes as well, air may seep out not only between the two layers of the, the, the pleura, right? It could actually, especially when there's the trachea involved, leak out underneath the skin. So as you palpate the upper chest up around that collarbone, and why do you palpate the collarbone when, you, when you're checking the chest? Most frequently broken bone in the human body, right? So as you're palpating up there, you feel crackles under the skin, like the little Rice Krispies or something. That's air under the skin, subcutaneous emphysema is what that's called. You're probably not going to do much for that unfortunate young lady right there. Penetrating injuries to the neck can cause profuse bleeding. That knife probably hit the carotid artery directly. What is exsanguation? Rapidly, right? Bleeding out within a couple of minutes. Laryngeal injuries, listen, it's really all the same. Um... What's in the larynx? What, what do we call that sometimes, normally? Voice box, right? Listen, they hit that snowmobile handlebars. They hit whatever they hit causes that trauma across there. If they can't speak and you see mechanism of injury that has them somewhere in here, understand we're looking at a laryngeal injury. <laughs> Again, we're repeating ourselves that we're going to stabilize all impaled objects unless they're obstructing an airway. Respiratory distress, hoarseness, dysphagia, which means what? Difficulty swallowing. Hemoptysis, coughing up blood, cyanosis, They've got an open wound in their neck, but sputum or spit is in the wound. You know that kind of goes through. You're absolutely going to apply cervical immobilization, which, like I said, we'll, we'll get in the floor and do that real soon. In summary, we talked about all of this. <clears throat> 